All right, you guys, if you want to take those Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 25, we got a little bit of ground to cover today, so we're going to get right into it. If you've been following the church series through Acts, uh, you've known that since about Acts chapter 20, Paul has been uh, kind of on the trajectory of a mission to get to Rome, and the Lord has been using... Uh, very natural events to work supernaturally to make that happen so that he could testify the gospel in Rome and from Rome to the ends of the world. And so uh, the, the natural means that that's been happening is simply through false accusations that uh, have taken him to court, both in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin Supreme Court and then to uh, Roman councils of Roman law down in the Mediterranean uh, city of Caesarea, um, Caesarea uh, Martema, which means Caesarea by the sea. And I just have a picture to show you guys uh, from this location. Uh, there in Caesarea, it was in the 1950s that some uh, archaeologists were just kind of cleaning up an area, you know, uh, sweeping off some ancient stones that then became more stones that became rows upon rows of seating and uncovered what was this um, couple thousand year old amphitheater in Caesarea. And it's such a wonderful amphitheater that uh, even today they still do concerts there. Hillsong United did a, um, an Israel tour and they played a concert there at this amphitheater. Um, it's just an incredible place to go. We, we go there when we go to Israel. Uh, one fascinating thing about it is uh, just a little bit up as you start to come up the stairs, uh, is a central box where kind of the guests of honors would sit. Um, we believe that this is where our story of today took place was in this amphitheater. And, uh, but also uh, an incredible discovery was found in that VIP box. And it was the seat cap <clears throat> for Pontius Pilate's seat. And um, up until that point, skeptics had said, you know, oh, Pontius Pilate was just a made-up character. You know, nothing in the scripture happened. And, you know, this guy that Jesus stood before wasn't even a real Roman governor. And uh, in the 50s, when they found this seat stone inscribed with uh, Pontius Pilate um, on the stone, uh, it was just a wonderful vindication for uh, the gospel and the Bible. And, uh, and now that, that has been removed, and now it's in a museum in Jerusalem and there's a replica there on display at Caesarea. <clears throat> Another wonderful thing is uh, that these stones uh, are believed by some to be the, the very stones down on the stage area where Herod um, was struck by an angel in Acts chapter 12 and devoured by worms. And, uh, and then where Paul would give his defense standing on these stones too uh, before Felix Festus and Agrippa. So... Uh, it's a great place. We have a picture of our, our team there in November. Chris is teaching the passage that we're in today and um, hope that you'll be able to carve out time over the next couple years to join us um, as we look at a, an Israel trip. We're also looking at maybe before our next Israel trip to maybe put a bee in your bonnet, uh, a footsteps of Paul tour through the Mediterranean that would be a cruise uh, to all of the different places in the book of Acts where Paul would go on his missionary journey. So right now we're feeling out what that is and what that looked like for our church. So you might just be praying about that, maybe saving towards that, and uh, that would be pretty exciting uh, as well. Uh, but what we have is in, uh, if you just go back like a verse in Acts twenty four twenty seven, after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. And so while we've studied the last couple of weeks, we've had Felix, the Roman in charge of Paul's trial, uh, kind of described him as a cat-like guy, and his name even reminded me of a cat. Uh, now we have Portius Festus, whose name reminds me of a high-performance vehicle, the Porsche, right? So, and, and that's kind of how he rolls. He's pretty fast, and he's going to get business done. Uh, someone described him as a brisk an energetic worker. A little bit, though, uh, of what was unfolding here as uh, Portius succeeded Felix. According to Josephus, Felix was recalled to Rome in order to explain his savage suppression of a dispute between Jews and Syrians over their respective civil rights in Caesarea. And he would have been severely punished, but for once again his brother Paulus's appeal and intervention with Nero. Not much is known about Festus. 
um, or who replaced Felix, but he died in office only two years after taking this role. He seems to have been more than just a moderate leader, um, but he was, he was pretty active, once again, a brisk and energetic worker. And so we're going to be introduced to not only Festus, but a couple more interesting characters today as uh, the story goes on. In Acts chapter 25, we're going to look at verse 1. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So Festus now inherits Felix's problem of Paul. And the Jews are up to their old crafty tricks as they right away meet the new leader of that region, the representative of Rome. They're hoping to ambush Paul yet again. If they could just, if uh, Festus could just bring Paul back to Jerusalem, um, then they had this plan. They would ambush him and kill him. And this is the second time they had a desire to ambush him and, and kill him. And, uh, and so not given up, and they're even uh, trying to have this Roman governor compromise integrity and just off the prisoner, you know. You've probably seen enough of the shows these days, you know, where the prisoner transport is happening and they're taking them to the, to the jail or to another prison and they're in the white cargo van with the screens over the windows and all of that and then, you know, roadblock and all that. Um, this, this has happened to Paul a couple of times. They've been trying to do this to Paul the Apostle and... Uh, we don't really know, though, if Festus was aware that the ambush was uh, planned. But one reason or the other, the Lord kept him protecting Paul by keeping him in Caesarea. And looking at verse 4, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept in Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. And when he'd remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. So do you see how fast like he's moving with the, um, you know, going through the docket and working through the docket? I mean, he'd only been a couple days down in his new province. He heads up to Jerusalem to check on one of the big cities of the area that he's responsible for. He has this petition. He says, nope. Uh, we're already, it's already in the Roman circuit now. So if you have anything, you can come back down to Caesarea and we can work on that trial there. He gets back and, uh, first, you know, first day back, you know, what's the first, I want Paul to be the first guy on the docket, you know, and then the law and order doink, doink happens, you know, and then, uh, and then enter the courtroom, right? Uh, so he commands Paul to be brought. Now, just to remind you, it's been two years since Festus, uh, sorry, since, um, Felix uh, had left Paul in chains, and now uh, it's, it's time to get this process and the due process going. In verse 7, when he had come, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood about, and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. The language is interesting here that the Jews stood about Paul, and it has that connotation of like ravenous wolves standing around their prey and just attacking uh, they stood about him as they accused him. But there's this really key phrase there at the end of the sentence, and that is that they could not prove it. These are things which they could not prove. And so, um, you know, if you follow those law, you know, dramas and uh, docu-series or whatever, uh, they have all this, this, and that, but do they not, they don't really have the evidence, you know. And, well, we think it was him. Well, there's not enough evidence or you can't prove it. Yeah, but can we prove it? You know, it's important to be able to prove these things. And they just were not able to prove these accusations that Paul had been in prison for two years regarding. Uh, eight and nine, while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all? But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? You know, so these guys, they had accused him. They couldn't prove it. He stands up for himself and has just the simple plea of innocent. I haven't done anything wrong regarding any of these areas. And while he mentions the law and the customs in the temple, um, really he kind of brings it more personal to the one he's standing before. And he says, And against Caesar... I've done nothing wrong. 
And so there's a little bit of the fear of man in Festus and wanting to please that crowd that, you know, one guy said it was a common thing to want to do the Jews a favor. They were like the child you're always just trying to keep from throwing a fit, walking on eggshells, giving them what they want so they just don't explode in a riot, which would then call into question the proconsul's leadership ability over the region. And so he's like, man, what what do I need to do to keep the Jews from from freaking out on me and causing a riot? Maybe we could go back over there and we could do the hearing over there. But Paul says, hey, I stand in Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I'm a offender, if I committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. So great integrity in, in Paul, you know, as he, how many of us would just say, hey, if I've done anything wrong, then, you know, especially deserving of death, then I'll face my death if that is what the law calls for, if I'm found guilty of that. But you know that that's not true. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm standing before Caesar's court. And then he just exercises this right that this Roman citizen had where he appealed to Caesar. And that was just kind of like this final, you know, um, it's almost like, you know, when uh, detectives have their suspect in custody and they're just trying to get things resolved while they can. And they're really finessing the the, uh, suspect and they're hoping that certain words aren't used specifically lawyer or I want a lawyer, I need a lawyer, lawyer up. Because the minute that lawyer card is played, it's like, ah, yes, for a lawyer. This is going to make this so much longer. And what did Paul do? Caesar. Uh, I appeal to Caesar. All right. And so that's going to set in motion kind of the rest of the story for the day. Uh, uh, we'll see why here. Uh, verse 12, then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. And so uh, we have a couple new characters added here. We have King Agrippa, known as Herod Agrippa II. Uh, His family line is very similar to that of his sister Drusilla's from last week. He had his great uncle was Herod Antipas, or or, or rather he was the great grandson of of the Herod who sought to kill Jesus at birth. His great uncle was Herod Antipas, who had beheaded John the Baptist after being uh, confronted with his affair with his sister-in-law. We have that his uh, father was Herod Agrippa I, who killed James, uh, making James one of the first uh, apostles martyred, and then sought to kill Peter. And... uh, and then we have also that he was also the one who was uh, struck by an angel. And I was joking around first service saying, you might remember the 1990s sitcom, uh, Touched by an Angel. That was the more pleasant version of Struck by an Angel from Acts chapter 12, where then he was devoured by worms and eaten alive. A little less pleasant than Roma Downey driving the red Cadillac, Cadillac around. Okay, but um, still good though, still good. Um, his sister was Drusilla from last week, and we remember what sort of a gal she was. And his other sister was a lady named Bernice, who he arrived with in a romantic relationship. He was in an incestuous relationship with his sister, a wicked relationship. And really, it was just living out the life of sin that this family of Herods had uh, for the last you know century, Bernice though was known as a ravishing, beautiful woman. John Stott says because he'd only been seventeen years old when his father died, this Herod was considered too young to assume the kingdom of Judea, which therefore reverted to rule by procurator. Instead, he was given a tiny and insignificant northern kingdom, which is uh, now known as Lebanon, and this was later augmented by territory in Galilee. He was nevertheless influential in Jewry because the emperor Claudius had committed to him both the care of the temple and the appointment of the high priest. He and Bernice came to Caesarea to pay their respects to the new procurator. And during their stay, Festus raised Paul's case, which had been inherited from Felix. He told the king three things which he had done. Let's look at these 14 through 16. 
When they'd been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a certain man left, a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it's not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. And so very good that the custom of the Romans was that of due process. We could be thankful for the Romans red tape. And you know what? There's times to be very thankful for the laws of our land as well. In Paul's case, a Roman citizen could not be deprived of life, liberty, or property without the appropriate legal procedures and safeguards uh, being put uh, there in place. And so they begin to talk shop in a sense. You know, they've been down there for 10 days, getting to know each other. They're meeting the new uh, ruler of the area, the new governor of the area. And just as they do, as you're getting to know people, you take them out to the shop and you show them the latest carpentry projects or you show them the the truck that you're redoing and doing the body work on, you know, or, you know, you show them the cattle and the vet issues and the different things and, and they're able to help and give insight into the projects they've done. And you might look into this and you might look into that. You might do it this way, buff it out that way, uh, try applying this to the wound or whatever it may be. And in this case, uh, you know, this case of Paul has been in the back of Festus's mind and he just brings it up to King Agrippa and says, I've got this issue. <laughs> There's this guy who has these accusations against him and he's totally innocent, but he just appealed to Caesar. And now what do I do? How do I even send him off there when he hasn't even done anything wrong? What do I tell Caesar? And he goes on to keep telling, you know, the issue that he has <clears throat> in verse 17 through 19. <clears throat> Therefore, when they'd come together without any delay, the next day I sat in the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I'd supposed. They had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And something I really appreciate about this account uh, through Festus is that he knows what the main issue is. The main thing right here is it's about Jesus. And it's about his death and especially his resurrection. And so it's wonderful when you hear of like the world processing the things that they've heard you say about Jesus. And just recently, I mentioned this, um, I had a little more clarity to the story, but we were out branding calves a couple years ago. And I just thought, man, I'm going to bring my guitar to the branding. And when we're sitting around eating, I'll just play a couple songs and and I'm going uh, to throw a couple songs about Jesus in there and just let, you know, this beautiful music uh, tell the story of Jesus and, you know, not what buckaroos do, right? Not the cowboy life is like, bring a guitar to the fire. And of course, even the, you know, like have some song of the gospel in there. I mean, it's like gospel is a genre, right? And, and uh, just to hear that there was one cowboy there that was like, <gasps> like this guy's singing songs about God, you know, and he just, he just had to get out of there. And I just heard that, but just so you can be praying, the Lord's doing some things in this guy's life. And so we're praying for him. Um, but anyways, you know, it, it's just something that, uh, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, as we go on in the text, uh, we do realize that it's really, it's just all about Jesus. It's all about his living and everyone's talking about it there. That's kind of the buzz uh, that was happening as Festus says, and then he just showed up. He's been talking about Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 20 through 22 can you believe how fast we're going through Acts chapter 25? You're like, there's going to be a revival. Uh, <clears throat> and because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. Hey, don't you love it when they repeat the story within the story? If you don't remember the story after today, you've got some issues. Okay, so we're reading it twice. So, all right. Uh, but when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So Paul had aroused Herod's curiosity as much as Jesus had aroused the curiosity of his great uncle, Herod Antipas. And you might remember on Jesus's final night in his trial, he was sent to Herod Antipas And Antipas just wanted to see if Jesus would perform some miracle and kind of dance, monkey dance sort of thing. But when Jesus wouldn't talk or perform, he sent him back and he was disgusted with Jesus. 
And so just as great uncle had been uh, curiously aroused, so had uh, Antipas, or here had Agrippa as well. Look into verse 23. <clears throat> Do you guys have your imagination caps on? All right, so uh, picture the, the amphitheater that we had just looked at and, you know, spruce it up a little bit so it doesn't look 2,000 years old, you know, and, uh, and just imagine it's the next day when Agrippa and Bernice come in with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city at Festus's command. And, and I'll pause there for a second. And so here are these royal figures that are here for this trial and they really make it into some sort of festival and some sort of a circus and quite the display so that King Agrippa and his wife's sister, Bernice, come in. And uh, kind of hard to know how to talk about it sometimes, you know, talk about the issues, but keep it funky. Um, and, uh, and they come in and it says it's with great pomp that they come in. Uh, it, it's the word in the Greek, fantasia. And the only thing that I ever know the word Fantasia from is from Mickey Mouse. And being a kid, turning that on, and you're like, what in the world? Right? Like, what is this? And what child can sit through this? I mean, he has got his wizard outfit on, and he's stirring up all kinds of trouble with that wizard wand, you know? And, uh, sorry, Brandon, don't get all offended about Fantasia. I know. Brandon told me Fantasia was his favorite movie the other day. So, um, you know, so, uh, so they entered in with great Fantasia or pomp, which I do know that word because I was in band in high school. And like the one song you had to get memorized and no good was pomp and circumstance, right? So that you could play at the graduation ceremony and no, 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 no. You guys aren't as into it as first service was. They all stood up and like, you know, if I only would have graduated, I would have heard that. But uh, so we used to have to play it for the Lakeview graduation, which was nice and short, just a few people making it that year. And then, you know, but some people, college band, you know, you got to play it for Oregon State and it's like going on and on and on, right? And, uh, and so there was great pomp and circumstance uh, happening as Bernice, Herod, Festus, and then the prominent people and the leaders of the city, uh, the, the commanders and the guards and the soldiers. People were calling them centurions in some of the book I was reading. Like, this is a big deal, and it's all in this amphitheater happening there. And you know, really, as, as royal and the purple robes and the golden circles on their heads and all of those things, uh, one commentator said, I think that the real... MVP of the moment was at the end of the sentence at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And I don't know if you guys have Bitmoji on your phone where you get to create a little character of yourself and text people with it. But there's one where your Bitmoji holds a plaque up that says, you the real MVP. And that's Paul right here. You're like, Paul, you the real MVP, right? As he's commanded to be brought in and you can just picture it there, the picture in your mind of the amphitheater and the stage and being brought up. Some even have said that uh, there's a little, there's a hole in the stage where uh, actors and actresses could go down into some rooms where they, even today, they get all dolled up in their actor garb, I don't know, um, and come up. And that that was where Paul was kept until it was time to be brought up. And so there's a couple archways, depending on which direction he came, that you can almost put yourself in the situation and as he's brought up, verse 24, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. And so whatever accusations they brought, they felt that the conclusion of the matter was that he should die and that he's just not even, he's not even good enough to live any longer. Uh, but when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner 
and not to specify the charges against him. Uh, and so, you know, he's in a bit of a dilemma because Paul has appealed to Caesar and to Caesar, he shall go. And he's got to send with him the legal documents stating his charges, but there's really nothing wrong. There's been no evidence. They haven't been able to prove it. He's really just being sent on the fact that Paul had appealed to Caesar and he's really making much ado about nothing, you know, uh, because here's how the whole thing could be solved. You've done nothing wrong. I know you've appealed to Caesar, but you're an innocent guy. I'm going to set you free now. But because he has that little bit of wanting to do the Jews a favor, uh, he's not doing the right thing. And one pastor I was listening to today says, all of this could have just been solved if you would have just done the right thing. That's so true with so many of the problems in our life, isn't it? That what should I do? What should I do? the right thing. Um, and so uh, I hope you're okay with this, but we're going to move on into chapter 26. Can you believe it? We did it first service. I think we can do it now. Uh, Acts chapter 26, verse one, because the story just goes right on into it. And Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul does what every good orator does. He stretches out his hand and answers for himself. So he's going to stretch out his hand. We know that he's going to be in shackles. He's going to be talk about his chains in just a little bit. And so, uh, so somehow with the chains on, he's able to stretch out and speak with his hands uh, and answers for himself. And he does what we saw Tertullian do, and we saw Paul do it in the last couple chapters, where he kind of starts out his legal diatribe with kind of a compliment and something to butter up the boss, you know. And, and he's going to say, uh, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning the things of which I'm accused for the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. And then he does what every public speaker does. I beg you to hear me patiently. Okay, so as we start a new chapter, I beg you to hear me patiently. Think you can do that? Uh, He says, my manner of life from my youth. And then you say, oh, it's one of those stories. (laughs) Goes clear back. If you've ever seen The Jerk with Steve Martin, my story? You want to hear my story? You know, and uh, oh, Herod, you want to hear my story? Uh, He says, uh, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. And think about it. Think of where you grew up. And anybody here just like born and raised in Prineville? Really? I think you're the old two, two people in this whole room. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes it's more. Sometimes people are like, I've been here my whole life. You know, you have a good look on your face for having been brought and raised here. You're like... It's a little bit of, I've seen some things, you know, but, you know, but you know, like the people that you went to elementary school in Prineville, right? And then they come back home and you see them in the store and you're like, I remember when you were that little buck tooth kid. That's what people talk about me that way, you know? Um, and that's what Paul's saying. He's like, I grew up, of course I'm from Tarsus, but I ended up going at a young age to Jerusalem and everybody there that I was serving on the Sanhedrin with the people that are accusing me, they knew me in my youth and that I was a good Jew, I was a good Jew, essentially is what he's saying. And all the Jews know it. They knew me from the first, verse five. Um, Yeah, verse five, they knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So the Jews are accusing me and they know, they've known me my whole life, that I was the strictest. These are the fun people to have in your life. Let me tell you, their full-time job was to keep the law of Moses. Such a joy to invite to the Super Bowl party, you know, um, just walk in the room and, wah, 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 you know, uh, but that was Paul, you know, fun to have at the men's muster. Um, and uh, he lived a Pharisee according to the strictness of the religion. Let's see how he puts it in Philippians chapter three. Now in Philippians chapter three, Paul is speaking and saying that if anyone thinks that they have a right to stand before God according to their own works and labor and goody two-shoesness, Paul would be the guy that should do that. He should be able to stand before the Lord because of his religiosity. And then he's going to get into, that's not how we're found righteous, you know? Uh, and so he says, uh, here's an example of my life and how, how good and Jewish I was. Circumcised not on the ninth day, but on the eighth day. I'm of the stock of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin A Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, how good are you at keeping the law? Concerning the law, 
I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I was so zealous, I was persecuting the church. I was persecuting Christians. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. Now, we know that righteousness doesn't come from the law, but if anyone's going to be measured by it, no one could blame Paul. In fact, later on in Romans, he says, the thing that got me, anybody know what it was? The thing that got me, it's the thing that you can't observe on the outside. It was something in here called covetousness. Ah, when I heard about covetousness, I was like, ah, I'm done for. I was so good out here. But then there was that thing that only the Lord knew about, and I have been covetous, right? And so, uh, but concerning righteousness of the law, I was blameless. And all these things that were gained to me, these I've counted a loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And I count them in rubbish. And this is a great example of the J curve we talked about on Easter. And it's just like, I've counted the suffered, the loss of everything for Jesus. I've counted all those things as rubbish. And then you see the curve come here that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, righteousness, which is from faith by God. And then that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And it may seem like another downturn. And that's the thing about the J curve is it's like, we always are coming out of a trial. Then we go back into another trial. He says uh, uh, that I may know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Oh, that's rough, but it doesn't end there that if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so he just speaks of like all of the pharisaical good Jew stuff that I was a good one. I count all that as loss for the excellency of knowing Jesus and even being part of his sufferings because we know the sufferings don't end it. It's his resurrection that ends it. And uh, verse six of our text, now I stand, two times he's gonna say, now I stand and I'm being judged. For the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serve God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused uh, by the Jews. And so I'm, I'm a Jew and I'm being accused for believing the things the Jews should believe in. The law and the prophets, the Messiah is death and his resurrection and the atonement for sin that comes through that. Uh, And then he goes into verse eight. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? He's just doing a good job, isn't he? He's talking to his judge and he's getting that judge to be processing and to be thinking these things. So Herod, you're a Jew and you're an expert in the customs of the Jews and you know the law and the prophets. Why would it be thought incredible that God would raise the dead? It's a good question for even you today if you come here a skeptic. Why would it be unbelievable for you that God could raise the dead? Or that God could raise you from the dead? Is that so hard to believe? Did not God create the heavens and the earth out of nothing? Did he not speak and light came forth? Did he not form man from the dust of the earth and breathe into his lungs the breath of life? Shouldn't he also raise up man from the earth and give life again to his mortal flesh? Is it too hard of a thing for God? Is it too foolish of a thing for God? Why wouldn't God raise men from the dead if he's able to? Was not our condition in the flesh in the garden before the fall a condition of perfection? And shouldn't we be restored to the same state as God has abolished our sin and made all things new? Why wouldn't he raise us from the dead? He goes on to say in verse nine, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I thought I had to be a bully. I thought Jesus was a heretic. I thought it was my duty to do things against this Jesus because I didn't believe in this Jesus. And John said that would happen when Jesus speaks uh, in John 16 too. Yeah, they'll put you out of the synagogue and the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. That's where Paul was. He was persecuting and killing Christians and he thought he was doing a good thing. I think that I'm serving God and putting to, uh, you know, quenching any of this doctrine and believing about Jesus. 
In 10 and 11, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So remember when he said, concerning zeal, I was so zealous. Zealous, I persecuted uh, the church. He would do things like shut up Christians in prison. He had the green light from the leadership to put people to death. He even cast his vote. And, and most believe that the one death that's really in his mind was the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. That that was really at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. That that was really the thing that um, it would end up being heavily conviction upon his heart. Um, and so, and you also know that, uh, when they were killing Stephen with stones, they put their garments and their outer coats at Saul's feet. Uh, and the culture was that the one who was giving the green light, the thumbs up to the death and the martyr of that individual, the execution of that individual was the one that they would put their coats at. And he was giving that vote, that consent, that green light to Stephen, um, that first martyr of the Christian faith. Uh, to his death. Uh, he would punish them and compel them, verse 11 says, which speaks of torture. Uh, there was really an inquisition against Christians where there would be torture. And uh, in my reading this week, they made it very synonymous to what you would see among like even the Roman government during the persecution of Christians and how they would compel them to denounce Jesus through torture. And it wasn't just like, Hey, say you don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. Okay, you're good to go. Like it was torture until they specifically would speak certain things that only someone who really didn't um, believe in Jesus would speak, uh, even to the point of having to worship at the altars of the false god and put incense upon those altars. Um, And it's believed that that would have been to the extreme that Paul was driving uh, these Christians to blaspheme or being compelled to blaspheme. And he even would uh, chase them to foreign cities. Now this would be something, and we'll see it in a little bit, that would just eventually be deep conviction and regret upon Paul's heart. And he mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 13, uh, about the resurrected Jesus. Last of all, Jesus was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. And so he just had this deep conviction. He writes about it later in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, about um, just uh, just how wicked it was that he was persecuting the church in that way. Uh, Looking at verses 12 and 13, while thus occupied, while being occupied uh, persecuting Christians, As I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road, I saw light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. So uh, what is brighter than the noonday sun, but the Shekinah glory of God, Jesus himself appearing there on the road. And when uh, we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there's just a great little lesson there for anyone that would harm the bride of Christ, his church, the apple of his eye, might as well just be harming Jesus himself. He says, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And this is the third time Paul's testimony has been shared in the book of Acts. And so it's nothing new. You've heard this phrase, to kick against the goads. It's that, uh, it's actually a poetic uh, phrase that's used elsewhere in literature as well. Um, But it speaks of, you're trying to move a a big beast, specifically something like a cow. And a lot of times they don't want to go where you want them to go. And so you would have this goad, which would be a sharp stick. And you kind of poke up in the ankle or poke them in the booty or poke them in the flank, you know. And a lot of times they'll kick right at you as they feel something like that, as you kind of tickle their flank or something. Uh, nowadays, modern days, it's a little thing called the hot shot. Just six beautiful big batteries will move that beast along pretty well these days, you know. You can also buy them for self-defense. Okay. But um, I would know I bought one the other day and it said, for self-defense use. You know, just if they're coming up behind you. Um, and uh, but 
it's, it's hard for the animals to just keep being prodded and not move along. Like eventually they'll move along. And Paul was being prodded. And many writers feel that it was through the conviction of what he'd done to those Christians that weighed heavily on his heart, especially what had happened to Stephen. And that as he was being convicted about this, he, no, no, it can't be true. It can't be true that Jesus, he just, no, he's, he's saying that he's God. That's blasphemy. He just, oh, he's suppressing, as the Romans tells us, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And who can tell me what happens when you start ignoring the conviction of sin in your heart and suppressing the truth? You just get so happy and pleasant to be around, don't you? Oh, it's like he's a big, beautiful ray of sunshine walking around town. No, you're suppressing that sin in your heart and the conviction of it. And you're saying, no, God, you begin to just, you're a lashing out at everybody. And that's exactly what Paul did. He would be a a ravenous wolf, Acts chapter 7 speaks of in the beginning of chapter 8. And the way he would pursue and hunt down his prey, the Christians. And finally, the Lord is like, you keep trying to suppress me. I'm just going to show up. <laughs> Boom, noonday sun, brighter than, you know. And, uh, and this was something that would get Paul's attention. It's really hard for you to be kicking against the goads, isn't it? And so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you've seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. And you know what? I believe, my friends, that the Lord has the same two purposes for you today as you would see him in his glory and in his beauty and come to know him. He has these same two purposes for you. Did you know that? He wants you to be, number one, a minister. Did you know that? That it's not just the full-time paid staff at the church that are the ministers, but that you're to be a minister, and it's in Ephesians chapter 4. You look at verses 11 through 12. It says, He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then the next verse says, So they'll do all the work in the church. No, that's not what it says. It says, For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And so God has given pastors, teachers, and, and some other offices as well to be building you guys up, to be equipping you so that you can know right doctrine, good doctrine, teach you philosophy of ministry, that we can see what your giftings and callings and abilities are in your life. And every single one of you have those gifts, callings and abilities, and you're to use them and you're to serve. And it says for a purpose there in Ephesians chapter four, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That means to build up this body. You know, this body will never be all that God wants it to be until you find the place God has for you to serve here. Did you know that? You're a Christian. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. Those gifts are to be used in a local body context to build up a church. And so I would just encourage you to begin that process of praying, seeking out leadership, ask them how, what are the needs in the church? How can I help out? What are my gifts and my callings? How could we apply that to this church? And we want to put you where God has you here, all right? But um, if you don't do that, you're robbing us of that blessing. And as we're called the body of Christ, it's like we're missing like those important appendages, you know, that just refuse to be a part of the body. And we're just walking around with a limp and we're not able to grip things right, you know, and we're only seeing out of one eye and only hearing with one ear. I had an earbud in the other day and uh, it's amazing. It just serves as an earplug, you know. And people are talking from like over there. And I'm like, this is what Courtney Papanoff feels like every day. This is horrible. You know, um, let's pray for Courtney. Um, yeah. So you know, you're just like one ear is not the way we should be living. All right. So where do you fit into this church? Let's have all 10 toes, huh? Let's have the medulla oblongata and the little hanging ball thing in the back of the throat and all of our bicuspids and the femurs and all those things. Like it's all connected, Right. And, and, uh, and that Ephesians passage just goes on to say that every part of the body should do its share. And so what is your share here? Um, God has a place for you. He wants you to be a minister. And it's so wonderful. Ephesians says that, um, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that word workmanship in the Greek is poema. It's just a beautiful picture of we are his poem. We are his, we're just a blank sheet and he is writing out a poem about our life and how he wants us to be, each one individually. And you know what, guys? 
Uh, We're like a bunch of snowflakes here. Not every one of us are the same. No two are the same. We all have different giftings, abilities, and it's a beautiful, wonderful, awesome thing. And not only was Paul's call to be a minister, but it also was to be a witness. From the first day he was saved, uh, he was called to be a witness and to testify what God had done in his life. And even just going through the book of Acts, have we heard his story a couple times going through the book of Acts? As you read through the epistles and the letters that he wrote, he'll tell his story. And that's all that being a witness is. It's telling your story of God's redemptive love towards you. You know, we're not all called to be lawyers and attorneys and to be arguing and, you know, making the case, you know, and we're not called to be judges and to be condemning or passing judgment on people, but we are called to be witnesses. And there've been a couple times that I've had to go to court, uh, spend a little bit of time in jail. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, the times I've had to go to court, I've had to go and be a witness on behalf of people. And I've had to go be character witnesses. And I got to talk into the long microphone that comes all the way up right here. You know, um, but there wasn't much stress involved in that. Like I didn't have to sweat and worry. I just prayed the Lord helped me to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And I really want to remember things correctly and how things went down. And, and then I just tell it how I remember it. And that's just what witnessing is. We are to called to be a witness. And I'm just going to tell you what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you about forgiveness of sins. I want to tell you about the hope that I have today and the hope that I have for tomorrow. Be a witness. What you've seen, the role that Jesus has played in your life. Uh, pouring out as a minister and a witness. Look in, continuing on in verse 17. Paul's still telling his story and he's still telling what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. That's a little risky, you know, looking at the judge, the Gentile saying, and God told me he'd deliver me from even you. You know, um, I'm sure that wasn't his tone or his look or anything like that, but it's kind of what he's saying. I love it when the pastor's wife laughs. Verse 18. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So when we are a minister and we are a witness, what does that do for people? It, number one, opens their eyes. Apart from Jesus, we are blind. And didn't we sing that today in that amazing grace song? Was blind but now I see, right? And that's true. Spiritually, we were blind. Paul tells the Corinthians that the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Until the Lord does an illuminating work, they are blind. And the psalmist says, open my eyes that I could behold wondrous things from your law. When we're out ministering to people, we're, we're helping the Lord in doing that. We're telling people the law of the Lord and the judgment that comes towards sinners and the gospel of, of salvation in Christ Jesus. And so we're out there, we're helping open men's eyes. And do you pray that? Maybe start praying that for your coworkers, for your relatives that are just blind and just thank the Lord for how he opened your eyes. Be praying for those neighbors, those friends. Lord, open up their eyes. They're just not seeing What else? I think there's four things here in this list, in this verse. They are turned from darkness to light, which speaks of repentance, that 180 degree turn. Uh, Jesus and Paul's message was that of repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. And we would turn from being children of darkness to children of light. Peter puts it so great when he talks about us in this new state of light. 1 Peter 2, 9 that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And, and we worship the Lord. Proclaim the praises. You've got proclaim, which is uh, witness, and praises, which is worship. And that's what we've, we're called to Worship and witness, proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. 
from the power of Satan to God is the third thing in this verse we see that there's two kingdoms and we're drawn out of the one from Satan. This isn't just like, oh, it's kind of bad. Um, oh, it's not really good. Um, oh, you shouldn't do that. Don't go there and talk to those people or whatever. It's full on like the kingdom of Satan. Okay. Jesus himself said it. It's the power of Satan and the gospels that were brought out of that. And they're not two equal kingdoms. And there's not this epic battle that one might win and one might lose. We just never know what it'll be like, like Satan going to lose. Okay. And he's losing now, but Jesus still refers to him as the prince of the air. And he still refers to him as the prince of this world. And he's got some power right now. And though he's got his teeth kicked out, he's still trying to gum us to death. Um, but, uh, but we're pulled out of that, the power from Satan and, and brought to God. And the fourth thing here, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And what a message there that we can share with people being brought out of the darkness and out of the power of Satan into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God with forgiveness of sins. And you know, I believe that that is something that every person desires is forgiveness of their sins. I was reading in some old notes and I had in my notes that uh, the word for holy in sign language is to make an H and I couldn't remember what H was last service and only the Hup family, you know, Wesley going into the Marine Corps, they all go like this, you know, and I'm like, that's why the Lord's sending it to the Marines, you know, um, but you take an H and then you wipe it out and you, you make a wiping motion. And when the Lord makes us holy, what does he do? Colossians tells us he blots out our transgressions. He wipes away our sin. That's what forgiveness of sin is, is that we are made holy. Colossians also tells us that the handwriting of requirements that were against us are taken away and nailed to the cross. Um, There's actually five things here. Receiving an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So those who come to Jesus after they've been witnessed to and ministered to, they're given an inheritance. The New Testament says it's an inheritance undefiled and incorruptible. It's eternal. And Jesus shares his sonship inheritance with the people that he's redeemed. It's so great. It's so much grace. It's awesome. You know, my dad died when I was 19 years old and we came from a cattle ranch in around Bonanza and Klamath Falls. And, uh, Grandpa had kind of taken the ranch a certain direction, decided he didn't want to pay some taxes, and he didn't like the way the tax system was set up, and got involved with the Montana militia, and we were in the Oregonian. There was a bit of a Ruby Ridge-style standoff. It was pretty cool. Um, let me tell my story, too. Uh, and so because of all of this, like we ended up losing the ranch when I was a senior in high school, and we were like kind of the mockery of the community and all of these things, and, um, and it was a difficult time for our family, and... I ended up losing my inheritance. And so even after my dad passed away, they came uh, for me and for my family and for our inheritance and took all of that. And so I grew up as a teenager and into my 20s with no inheritance after dad passed away. And it just taught me from a young age that all of the hope that we have in this world and the gold and the value of money down here, that could be taken in an instant, you know, and the things that you might want to hope in and rest in, uh, they are corruptible and you might lose it. Uh, but there is an inheritance that's secure and undefiled in the heaven. And it's the one that Jesus has shared with us uh, by his grace. We receive that as we're sanctified and set apart from this world. And notice, how are we sanctified? By faith in me. We're going to move along pretty fast here, you guys. Uh, verse 19, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision uses like a double negative there, which confuses some people. Not disobedient, so you were not, I don't know. Um, he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but he declared first of those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles. Uh, he went after it, right? He started being that mish, uh, minister and witness. And what did he witness? That they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. We're not saved by our good works, but we're saved for good works. Those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fruit of their life will be works towards righteousness. So that was Paul's declaration. Verse 21, 22, and 23. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great 
saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And so he says the same thing. The language is something that Martin Luther used at the Diet of Worms. Here I stand bearing testimony. And the reformers would say as they would stand there uh, that we are uh, renovators, not innovators. What they mean by that same thing that Paul means, I'm not making up any new doctrine here. I'm just living out what all of the fathers and prophets before us uh, would speak. And so would you, you know, would you believe this too? He's going to end up calling on uh, even Herod for this. So uh, this is just what we always have believed, that Messiah would come, Messiah would die. Remember Psalm 22, Easter Sunday, there would be a death, there would be a resurrection. It's just what we had all believed. Moving on 24, now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. And so, man, Paul was just really getting into it. He's just, man, you know, when you're talking and just things are going really well and people don't look like they're ready for lunch and they want to get out of there for the afternoon. Uh, you know, he's really getting into it. And then he gets just interu- interrupted in the midst of it by, Her- uh, by Festus, rather, who had heard him before. He said, Paul, you're crazy. You become Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind. Like clearly you're just writing on the board and you're just like, and he's not wrong. Um, Even Paul's mentor that he grew up under had written in history. I can never provide enough books for Saul. Like he was just that bookworm, that kid that just walked down the street reading his book, you know, and just like crazy about it all. And, uh, but Paul's going to have this very quick, uh, repost. Ready? And what does he say? He says, uh, oh goodness, forgive me. Where is it? I thought I figured, oh, there it is. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Or, or reason can even mean sober truth is what he's saying. I'm not mad. I'm not crazy. I might've been writing it on my clear board with the white pen, like beautiful mind, you know, but it all makes sense. It's truth. It's reasonable. It's historical. If you're a fair inquirer, you will find that the things that I'm saying are truth and not crazy. And then it's just great because Paul is going to go from talking to Festus and saying, I'm not crazy. You're crazy. You know, and then he's going to go just right over to Herod and start talking to Herod point blank. King Agrippa, you see in verse 27, do you believe the prophets? You don't even need to answer. I know you believe the prophets. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. I love the way the new King James puts it because it's almost like this hopeful, like you're almost there, you know, where Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Maybe your translation isn't quite as exciting when it says, uh, you think that I would become a Christian so quickly or in such a short time, are you persuading me to become a Christian, you know, or, uh, so easily I would become a Christian. It's a little more like cynical. I like the new King James though, cause it's a little more hopeful. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul, again, I mean, this is good back and forth banter that's going. You don't see this on Law and Order, you know. Maybe Matlock had that a little bit more, you know. I don't know. But, um, and Paul says, I would that not only you, but all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am. And what was Paul? What did he have that he wanted everybody there? I want you, Herod Agrippa. I want you, Bernice. I want you, Festus. I want all of you uh, centurion and officers and city officials and everybody that's here in this amphitheater. I wouldn't that you'd almost become a Christian. I wish that you were as I am. And man, what am I? I'm forgiven. I'm a guy that was killing people and persecuting people. And now I've been forgiven of all of that. I've got a clean conscience. I've got... Uh, as the old hymn says, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. 
Um, I once was blind, but now I see. I've got hope in my family. I mean, think of it for yourself. And don't you want people in this world to have what you have in regards to your marriage and, and healing and hope and health and your parenting and your kids and your business and how you do life and um, how you think and plan for the future, how you make decisions and how God's been faithful and how he heals and he intervenes and he works miracles, all these things. He's so awesome. And you can just picture Paul all together, almost all together and as much as I am. And as he's thinking of all the good graces of God, he hears a little jangling going on. And it's not the quarters in his pockets, okay? It's the chains on his hands. As much and all together as I am, except for these chains. I don't want you to have these, but I want you to have the hope that I have. And, and the, the, being a born again, new creation because of Jesus. And you know, Herod just says something that is, you know, Paul, you just imagine he just turns up the volume in his sermon because Herod, what was called an almost Christian, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And the world doesn't like to hear this, but an almost Christian is not a Christian. Someone who's nice is not a Christian. Someone who's ethical and moral and so sweet and generous and is almost there isn't there. That's a hard message. People, it's, it's difficult to say that, especially when it's, you know, funeral time. And you're there with the people that you love so much, grieving the loss of that friend or family member, and you know they were sweet. And you know they made good, you know, pasta, you know? And you know that they can make a snuggly place for you to rest at night. And you know that they voted according to your convictions. But you also know that as many times as you shared the gospel with them, they rejected a God who died for them. An almost Christian is not a Christian. And if you're here today, would you just hear the plea of my heart? Become a full-blown Christian. Just put your trust in Jesus and rest in him. Lay down your stubborn pride and receive the one who came and lived for you and died for you so that you could be saved and forgiven and have the hope of heaven and, and be in his presence now and forevermore. It takes humility to come to that point. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't be an almost Christian because you're going to be an almost Christian until the day of your deathbed. And if you've rejected Jesus your whole life, what makes you think it's going to be so easy to humble yourself before him then? An almost Christian is no Christian. And Paul says, I wish you were like me. And I would say that too. I wish you were like me, Rory, except for this Adam's apple. Nobody wants that. Okay. <laughs> you know, and there's more, but other than that, no, those two things, you know, uh, and my chain tattoo. I'm just kidding. Um, come, come be a part of the Christian church. Be almost and all together as we are. And see, see how good and wonderful the Lord is. 26, uh, I'm sorry, 26, 31 and 32, and we're done. And worship team, do you want to come on up? And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. A little bit of a, just a sad ending, right? I mean, it was getting good. There was back and forth going on in the courtroom. There was, you're crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm speaking the truth, of truth and reason. And you know it. Yeah, you know, you believe the prophets, Herod. You believe the prophets. I know you believe the prophets. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. I'm persuading you to become a Christian. Man, right now, altar call in the giant amphitheater in Caesarea. Come forward if you want to believe in Jesus. And all the people come forward, including Bernice and Festus, and they get the New Believers Growth Book by Greg Laurie and the Gospel Track and the Christian CD, you know, and yes, that's not really how it ends. It ends with the side conference. Well, I think he's innocent. It's too bad he's got to go to Caesar now because he should have been let free. And that's all we have. But that's not how today has to end. Today, you can become a Christian, have forgiveness of sins, a new heart and a new start. God wants, you to, God wants to use you. He wants to make you a minister. You don't get the cool black coat with the clerical collar. Sorry, I didn't even get that, okay? All right, but you get to be a minister, which means a servant 
In fact, the word used for servant and for minister is under rower. And it speaks of, if you've ever seen Ben-Hur, you know those ships where they're just, you got these powerful men underneath, right? And it was these unseen individuals and their strength that they provided that moved the ship. And that's how the church moves. That's how the church is effective. It's by the people that aren't always up front. They're not always seen. They serve in obscurity. They're behind the scenes. Many of you are those people. This is why the church is not operating well here because of me, you guys. It's in spite of me. It's because of all of you who are the under rowers. You get here early. You stay here late. You're coming in the middle of the week. You're loving on people. You're reaching out. You're sharing the gospel. You're praying for the hurting. You're You're ministering. And because of that, this church, you guys, is on the move and it's got a great weight going on behind. God wants you to be a part of that. So become a Christian today. Become a minister today. Become a witness today. That's what God has for you. And all you got to do right now is just give your life to the Lord. Give your heart to Jesus and say, I am yours today. In fact, will you just pray with me? Just let the Lord into your heart and just say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know what I've done. Will you please forgive me of those things? I've heard a lot today about your blood. I've heard a lot today about the cross. I've heard a lot today about atonement for sins. I've heard about a new heart and a new start, and I need all of those things today. So forgive me. Wash my my slate clean. Take the H and just do the wiping motion, Lord, and make me holy. Set me apart from my sin. I know I need to be born again. I know I need new life. Give me new life today. And it was at Paul's conversion that he also had that call to be a minister and a witness. And today you too hear that call to be a minister and a witness. So maybe just even say to the Lord, Lord, I I hear that. I don't know what it looks like, but use me and let my mouth tell of your goodness. And those of you that are Christians today, and there's just a word for you about being that minister, being that witness, helping open the eyes of the blind. Take them to Jesus where their eyes can be open. Take them out of the pit and set their feet upon the rock. Transfer them from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God from darkness to light, bringing people into that wonderful inheritance that's incorruptible in the heavens. Lord, let us be witnesses. Let us be ministers. And show people today where their gifts and callings are and where they can just be plugged into this church to build it up, to be those under rowers. In Jesus' name, will you stand with me and we'll close in song today?